Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we are talking about taking communion to the homebound. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, as always, it's it's good to be able to uh, share with you and to talk about a few things that I think people will find do find interesting uh, as they as they reflect just a bit maybe what some of their own experience has been and and particularly for example when it comes to something like uh, communion taking communion to the homebound I could tell you all sorts of stories of what people have experienced I, I will share one but uh, in time to come but it's it is something uh, that has certainly been with us for a long time. And it really does, this practice of taking communion to the homebound, to hospitals, uh, nursing homes, uh, those kinds of facilities and such, has really been with us for a very long time. And in fact, when you think about going to um, uh, this idea of taking communion to people that, uh, that aren't able to join the community and such, it goes back to a, 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 like I said, to a very long time, and it has known a variety of practices as to why it's done, how it's done, uh, how the practice either continues or doesn't continue, and I am sure that over a period of time, that it will, um, it will probably continue to change. So anyway, let's as we start with some of this. Let's go back to a little bit to the early Christian communities. Ooh, can we do like a rewind? <laughs> really, that might be <laughs> the best thing to do. The practice of, of breaking bread and sharing it not only in a particular family, but taking it to another person for a variety of reasons literally goes back to the very um, early Christian communities when they started the practice of of what we have come to know as Eucharist. Um, It would certainly not, it certainly is different than it is today because of some of the practices that, for example, they didn't have tabernacles, they didn't have those kinds of things, adoration, none of that existed. It just plain didn't exist. Uh, This was really much more uh, a very practical thing of sharing a common meal. Um, Many times it would have been a, a family, depending upon how large the family was, or uh, in the beginning anyway, it would have been a singular family. Over time, it would have been something where they begin to gather families together. Now, where this practice would have come from, from what would have been reminded uh, throughout their history, is the practice of the Passover, where that idea of, of God passing over and, and freeing them from Egypt that whole instruction of, you know, gather one family, gather together. And if you don't have enough, you know, to procure the lamb, you might say, and you don't have a big enough group, gather a few smaller families together and, and share that because the Lord will pass over and mark your doorposts, those kinds of things. So this wouldn't have been something that was totally foreign to them, but literally would have been based on a lot of what they would have come to know through history, through ritual, those kinds of things. So this practice would have gone on for over quite some time. Uh, 
over time, the practice really was more for larger groups for a variety of reasons. One, Christians had to support one another. Two, for protection hmm. uh, in that you would have had at different times, depending upon where they would have gathered, sometimes in homes, maybe they might have gathered in catacombs. They might have gathered in, in different types of places where the Romans wouldn't suspect and you would have needed lookouts, you would have needed people to guard doors, all of that kind of thing. So the practice would have changed and morphed for a lot of uh, different reasons, for a lot of basic needs that, that were there. The breaking of the bread, you know, again, as I mentioned, was, was also centered around the meal. Um, this was not a, uh, a standalone ritual as we would have known it. Uh, this would have been literally a meal. The family would have gathered, or groups. They would have had, you know, the, the whole meal of during a time of prayer. And then there would have come, they would have come to the breaking of the bread. Uh, this bread would have been broken so that each person would have taken a chunk off, you might say, of a loaf. Uh, they didn't have the, you know, the nice, cute, and neat little host makers that they do today. <laughs> Um, Probably was full of gluten and absolutely, you know this idea. Even and, and I suspect uh, if it was unleavened, it's probably because they were way too poor to have yeast yeah. of any type. Um, that would have been pretty much the the norm of the day, rather than um, you know again some of the legal things that we have now. So it ne wasn't necessarily flat. No, when they gosh, started no. out. It was no, more no. normal bread that you just rip you would off have had a big honking loaf, or at least a small honking loaf, but it would not have been flat or as you know we know today is. And literally, this would have been passed around, and you would have torn off a piece of this bread. <laughs> then go. I think you took too much. <laughs> well, and the other piece to this is remember it was part of a meal. The first piece or whatever would have been certainly sharing the bread. The rest of the hunk that you had probably would have been sopping up the gravy. Um, or the olive oil. Or the olive oil, or whatever it yeah. was, you know. It's, it's, we don't put it in those contexts because we are so used to the practices that we have that I, I can, rem again, I go back a little farther than you do where in the 70s and 80s, there was a common practice of churches making their own bread. I remember my mom telling me that. You know, and then they would have it where it would be torn in chunks, you know, and sometimes you got a big piece and sometimes a little piece. Other times, depending upon how big the congregation was or the circumstances, they would literally cut it in small squares and cubes. Oh, sure. And that would be used... Uh, so baking bread was a ministry? It was It was a ministry. There were families, there were groups, and there were, uh, like any time, you know, sometimes they pushed the envelope a little bit and threw in a little honey or a few <laughs> other things that were probably... But, but again... I mean, the candles the, are beeswax, so well, uh, or, or a little honey probably. Sometimes. Um, otherwise, they're paraffin or Lord knows what chemicals. They're just plain oil. It's... We have made it 
I believe that we have made it into something that it hasn't originally been. We just have lost the memory to it. We know that these were not loaves, and whether or not they were unleavened, who knows? Over time, there is a lot of different things, you know. Uh, and, you know, you, you also look at this and ask yourself, how much of this was simply, simply culturally, you know, determined? If they had, you know, drunk apple cider, would we be using apple cider today? If they had used, you know, rye bread, would we be using rye bread today? The fact is, is that much of this has been controlled by, uh, by custom, by culture, and we have brought it into, uh, into our own day and age. And there are times when I think, and this is a little bit off the issue here, there are times I think it's going to eventually change. You know, it's like, as, as, one person said, sometimes it is much harder to believe that the hosts we get are bread than to believe it's Jesus. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. Sometimes you look at that and say, my God, what did they make this out of? And is it made out of bread or is it asbestos? You, you wonder. And Gross. Uh, you know, it's not asbestos, yeah. people. <laughs> I know it's not. But you wonder sometimes, you know, and just and you look at that and saying, what have we done to it? And what will it be over time? Who knows? I don't think that's really all that important, but that's my opinion and, and, and nothing else than my opinion. So now circling back to communion to the home. To communion to the home. Would these people they would take would they take the meal to the person that was homebound and then they share the meal with everyone there? Well, yes and no. In a sense, in the beginning, those the people that they took Eucharist too, as we have come to know it, would have been the sick. Uh, they would have been people who were uh, in hiding. They would have been people who were in jail or prisons. They would have been people who were under all sorts of circumstances that, you know, the, of the time, because as this was developing, it really wasn't all that safe to be, um, you know, to be labeled as a Christian. So what they would do in the beginning anyway is that it literally was bringing a meal because one, if you were in prison, you weren't going to eat unless you had someone bringing you food. And depending upon how many people were in that jail, you had better bring enough for everyone <laughs> or there was going to be hell to pay. In, I mean, there are still countries where if you are imprisoned or in jail to this very day, where you don't eat unless somebody knows that you're in there. And so, Yikes. again, if you bring some food to your family member, I mean, you can bring it all right, but you'd better have enough for a whole lot more people than just your family member. Um, because if you were a small person, you know, in the jail cell, and some of these jail cells may be by, you know, 14 feet by 14 feet, you could easily have 12 to 15 people in that space and they're all going to be hungry as you're going to be hungry. So in the beginning, yes, they took a whole meal, recognizing that part of the bread, they might have separated it a bit. Part of that bread would have been used in, in the prayer. They would have consumed that and then the rest of the meal they would have had in order to eat. Um, so... 
over time, so there were a lot of people that they would have gone to and were not able to join these groups for lots of different reasons. And these are the people that they would have wanted to take Eucharist too. So this has been going on for a very long time. A very long time. Since, like as early as Christianity, pretty much. Really, really, in a sense, to the very earliest stages as, as these groups called the Way initially, as these groups gathered as these small uh, wacko groups that they were considered to be, and, and it wasn't safe, as I mentioned, to do that. They've been around that long. I mean, from the very beginning. Now, when they, we talked a, f- I don't know, few podcasts back about how, probably during Tabernacle, I don't know, when they would raise Jesus, or yeah, when they're doing the prayer of consecration, but no one else could receive. receive. So that probably stopped for a while. Or was that always taking well, it to the homebound? That well, actually, you didn't take it to the homebound. That was a practice that, that, that stopped for quite some time, in fact. And the only way that you generally were going to have communion brought to you was probably for the extreme unction. You know, you were, you were on your way out. And that eventually became called viaticum, communion. But the idea being is you were, you were on your way to dying. And so unless you were on your way to dying, there was basically not going to be a whole lot of taking communion to homebound. That just didn't happen. One, you were not considered worthy of it. <laughs> and, and two, is that you were lucky if you had, as we call it, ocular communion, that they were raising it above the heads in order at least to get a glimpse. Mm-hmm. At least a glimpse. Well, that says something. You know, when when the best you can do is to, I saw the Eucharist today, then you obviously know there wasn't a whole lot more going on, you know, as far as taking communion uh, to the homebound. Much of that was beginning more uh, toward before, shortly before the council, and then certainly after the council, but there was a whole period of time that just wasn't going to happen. So, like, 19... Middle 1900s, we started back again with... I would say probably that would be a good time because there was a different emphasis beginning, which ultimately was part of leading up to the council. But but documents and a lot of thought and, and reflection on communion and scripture, this was fomenting, you might say, for, for decades before the second council in the early 60s, yeah. 1960s. And so it was beginning to be more popular or more done. But it still had a long way to go from where we know it today, where a person is able to have a PIX. And again, there needs to be still, it continues to need to be education about this. Mm-hmm. But it would have never been considered, you know, here, here's a PIX and take the Blessed Sacrament to your mom or your dad who was homebound. So it sounds like when the communities were small and first starting out and could minister to people more indi- on an individual basis, basis, that's when the homebound communion taking it started. And then once it became more of a structured Christianity, yes. faith, yes. religion, that's kind of when it tapered off a bit. Yeah, because what you had is that, you know, when you think about it, these people knew Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were the people who would have been sitting at that first you know, Last Supper, you might say, they would have been telling the stories. 
they would have been recognizing that this was, you know, in many ways, you had a, a low Christology in, in the sense that you were Christ. You yeah. were you put on Christ, as Paul would say, you put on Christ. Um, so the idea that you weren't you weren't worthy, untouchable, all of that, that was a later development as high Christologies developed, and that's in the early, you know, let's say you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundreds and such. When it became legal. Yeah, is that now you have a, a much a, a growing high Christology? Now you aren't worthy. You can't touch. You can't even receive unless under very, very special circumstances. And you might say what had happened in the Jewish tradition, which Jesus fought against, mm -hmm. was the very thing that was happening in our own tradition, is that it became relegated strictly to the priests and to the wealthy and completely forgotten were, were the poor and, and, and the little man or woman. And, and you know, when you think about what was Jesus talking about all that time, you know, about how God loves the little ones, that God takes care of the widow and the orphan. God takes care of the poor. Uh, not so much for the institution of the church. So now for maybe 75 years, we've been doing communion to the homebound? Yeah, I would say about that, you know, where it had been growing and then really has taken off the last, you know, certainly the last 40, 50 years yeah. since the council. Uh, my concern sometimes is that there are those who want to take it all back again and, and keep it only for the clergy to do or for deacons. I have a real concern about like, that. You guys would visit the homebound? And we would be the only ones only taking ones communion to the homebound. Oh my gosh, we're going to just run our deacons and priests ragged. Well, not only that, but what it does is, again, it relegates somehow, it relegates the Eucharist to special people rather than recognizing the need for people to receive Eucharist, not as a magic potion, but the connectedness. And that's the whole idea, the connectedness to the community. So when you begin to look at how this began to change, is that even though, you know, it, it, it broke away a bit from the, the normal family meal, and now you ritualized it more based off of the meal, is that though you weren't taking, let's say, a whole plate of stew to a person, you were still taking the Eucharist to the person. That Eucharist was now connected to a community or a family that was celebrating, praying, gathering, is that it connected you to those people that maybe you couldn't see because it was illegal. Maybe you couldn't see because you were in prison. Maybe you couldn't see because you were on death row. For lots of different reasons, is that it connected you to this group that was gathering and praying for you and with you. My concern is that if it's simply relegated under this uh, unworthiness type of thing, a lot of times that, you know, oh, my hands are on, my hands are unworthy. No one's hands are worthy. There is no priest, pope, bishop, cardinal. No one's hands are worthy. Is that it is through the grace of God that we are made worthy. It is through the grace of God that we as part of a community are able to say, I as a representative can bring that to someone who may otherwise not be connected with the community. Um, 
I have a concern. You know, sometimes where things seem to be moving, um, and and it's it starts to seep in, and once it starts to seep in a bit, a bit I should say, it, it it takes a long time for for us to get out of those kinds of things. Um, when you think about this whole idea, though, of, of, of taking communion uh, to the home bond, even though it, it, parts of it got separated in ways, what has been there in a way from, from the very beginning is that one, being nourished. And that was, you know, when you literally took a meal and some of that bread was, but you, you were nourishing somebody, taking a meal. Um, connected, as I mentioned, to the greater community. Um, it was co always connected you might say, to the presence of the Lord in bread shared. This idea of breaking bread and sharing a cup was very, very important to the early Christian community. And, you know, it has continued to be important, although for a long time, you know, the cup was not shared. Um, now, again, in the sec now this was after the Second Council that finally... You know, permissions given to share the cup. Based, and now we can't share well, the cup yeah. anymore. Based on a meal, based on that type of thing. Um, and so, you know, but that has been a piece of it, you know, the importance of what it means to share a cup with someone. Um, and the other thing was, uh, it was a reference, you know, always to the Eucharist that was being celebrated someplace by someone. We can forget, although we were reminded a bit, you know, during the COVID time, of how important Eucharist can be for people, you know, when you can't be there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people have shared with me since, you know, I've really missed this. I've missed this idea of, of being able to come and pray with the community. I've missed, you know, receiving community uh, communion. I have missed... Um, you know, hearing what the community's concerns are or or regular preaching and such. I have really missed that. Um, so it's, you know, that idea of being connected to something greater is, uh, has, is still there. And part of what, what we need to do, and I know we've talked a bit about this in the past, is that because the Eucharist is so based on family meal and such, when the whole idea of eating together at home in some ways went to the wayside, it is harder and harder for folks to understand Eucharist because it's not a happy meal. It's not McNuggets. Can't you know? drive through. It's, yeah, there's no drive through. There is, you know, a meal takes time. A meal takes preparation. I would say a meal takes love, you know, type of thing. Is that when I think of the meals growing up, again, part of my background, three times a day we sat down as a family and we ate. Um, you, you did not, even if you were ticked off, you did not miss that meal. <laughs> you know, whether you were hungry or not, you didn't have to say a word, but you didn't miss the meal because that was the time that the family gathered. You never and, got in trouble and didn't couldn't eat the meal. Well, that we did. Yeah, you you might you know the idea being is it's there. You don't want to eat it. Don't have to, but you ain't moving. 
Uh, so and, you still had to sit there. Yeah, oh, yeah. You had to sit there. Yeah, yeah. You, there was no go to your room or anything like that. Now, that was bologna. You don't have to eat it, but you got to sit there. And if you don't eat it, don't expect dessert. Don't expect anything else. And don't expect something later in the evening. Because once food was over, it was over. Kitchen closed. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you know, when you think about all of that, but, but you learned something from that. Mm -hmm. You learned the value of, of talking to one another, of catching up, of telling the stories. You there were things I didn't like, and there were things I loved. And, you know, so for me, for me when I think of sharing a meal with someone, you know, to sit down for a half an hour and share a meal is not sharing a meal. That's ramming food down your throat. <laughs> sharing a meal takes about an hour, two hours or whatever, because you talk before, you talk during, you talk after, you have coffee, you have... I mean, there are all these things that were part of meal that literally in, in some way, symbolically or not, however, are part of Eucharist when... A group of people lose that sense is that it is not uncommon or unusual then for people to lose the sense of why go to Eucharist because you've lost the sense of connectedness mm -hmm. and and so when what I hope I guess my hope is is that we begin to regain some of that I know that uh, different articles and reports that I have read that you know, people have talked about of, of rediscovering what it means to actually cook and, <laughs> and to sit down and to eat with people because they oh, were man. all home. Yeah. You know? And, oh, during COVID Yeah, times. during the COVID time. And people rediscovering that, people discovering because they had a chance to cook, you know, say, wow, I really like cooking. I love cooking. To me, it's incredibly relaxing, it's creative, and I get to use all sorts of kitchen gadgets. And see, that's where I go, then you have to clean all those kitchen gadgets, and uh -huh. the kitchen cleaning is terrible. But I grew up... And it takes so long to cook and oh. so fast to eat it. But it was all part of it because growing up again, mom did the cooking and such, but growing around machines and cows and wash, you know, washing utensils, that was part of the cleaning was just part of the ritual. And some of the best conversations were at the sink or in the milk house, washing all of the utensils. It's amazing what you find out and have the conversation. But see, that's again part of family. Obviously, that's harder to do when you live alone. Mm. There's no question. But those are some of the things that we begin to lose of how important it is to have that connectedness. And you have to like everybody. Um, that's not even the point. But the idea being is that there's a connectedness there that is important, and we are less for it when it's not there. And so when you, you begin to look at this idea of, of communion to the homebound, it really, again, it brings back that sense of connectedness. The, the numbers of folks, when I take communion, you know, and, and I know that people you know, take communion to all sorts of folks, and they usually let me know, you know, mom or dad is really, really sick we'd like you to bring communion, but also anoint and such, is that the number of times people will say things to me like, I am so glad that my son or daughter, you know, because I knew that the, you know, people had get, I'm so glad you can bring this to me. I know that I'm not praying alone. 
and inevitably. I will remind folks that, as you know also with funerals, I always remind folks that there are people that are praying for them that they know, mm -hmm. but so many more that they will never know. And, and, and the, the hope, the sense of connectedness that can really make a difference to people when they know that they're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. um, because any type of event like those kinds of things, sickness or death or whatever, can be so extremely isolating for folks. And the importance of knowing that somehow there is a connectedness with well, I mean, that. Even I can imagine it feels very lonely. Yeah. Being stuck at home or sick or whatever, you know, just living alone is hard. So knowing there's a community that you may not be able to see, but someone representing the community comes to you is awesome. I was reminded of that during this COVID time that um, I was talking to some of the, the, the clergy that I'm part of a group that's ecumenical group, senior clergy, but also with some of the folks when they would talk about having to stay at home and that with their kids, with their spouse, with their, <laughs> that they, they had to stay home. There was no place you could go. And I was thinking about that, that I have not experienced that kind of thing. I think there are reasons why part of it is my background. But I know that part of it also is that I could come here. Yeah. And I knew that there was a group here, and, and it might be a little sporadic at times, but I knew that there was a group here that I would interact with, and that even in light of everything that was or was not going around us, we were actively engaged with each other to figure out what do we do next? <laughs> Where do we go with this? What decisions do we make? And how much of a difference that made that I could leave my home yeah. and I could interact with people on a regular basis. And I never thought about that until, you know, you start listening to folks and they start relating their experience. And, and it, it just struck me that the importance of being connected mm -hmm. uh, and, and how much that helped me because I knew that, that I wasn't in this alone. I, I, I just didn't have four walls to stare at. I know. I kept telling my sister, thank goodness I could come to work. Because I would have been going nuts at home by myself. Oh, I, I would have too. I, I mean, yeah, I would have gone crazy too. Um, maybe I should have stayed home for a while and gotten a few other things done. But, <laughs> but the fact is, is that it's it's in so many ways about it's about connectedness. Um, you know, and, and when we talk about <clears throat> bringing the uh, Eucharist to homebound, is that uh, there are some basics that we need. You know, it's because it isn't magic. <clears throat> It's not magic. Is that, you know, um, sometimes, you know, you need to bring mom or dad communion and you get there and mom or dad, first of all, aren't even conscious uh, or they're just not aware. And sometimes it can be pretty difficult to explain to folks, Eucharist is not what they need right now. They may need to be anointed. They need to know that there is someone there, but they are simply not aware of what's going on. Now that's a judgment call and I get that. Um, but there have to be some basics and so it's, it's it's somehow that there's an awareness of what is happening. Uh, he said, well, well, they need Jesus. Trust me, Jesus is there <laughs> and has been all along. Jesus is not there all of a sudden because the Eucharist is there. The presence of the Lord has been there 
as I believe, during all of our great moments of need. The Lord's always present to us. The Eucharist brings and packs with it so many other pieces, you might say, but to somehow think that the Lord's not there unless I have communion, that becomes magical now. And, and we have to be very careful of that, that it's not magical. So the person has, has to be some, some sense of awareness. There also needs to be a time of prayer. This is not about knock, knock, hello, Father, come on in, here's Jesus on my way out. <laughs> is that when somebody asks me to, um, you know, to bring the Eucharist, I always plan at least for an hour. Um, and sometimes people stare and say, I take communion to 20 people in an hour. Um, okay, sure. Can't do that. I'd be a really bad chaplain, probably. Probably. <laughs> um, it's not that I'm not aware that, you know, that when a person is tired and you look for those signs. Certainly, I have brought, the, you know, the Eucharist to people and maybe it's only 10 minutes. But that's because it's, you know, they're tired and you can see they're Other tired. circumstances, yeah. yeah. So you judge, you make that judgment. But inevitably, for the most part, when it's someone who's awake and, and engaging, they want to tell stories, they want to know, you know, they want, because they probably have felt very isolated, or they've only seen the same people, you know, for a long time, and they've got a new victim. <laughs> and, and I don't mind that, because one, many of these folks... You, you know, were grew up on farms. I can relate to that. And so I'm able to ask questions and stuff. One, because, you know, uh, my grandparents also were farmers. And so I knew a lot about how my grandparents farmed and how my mom and dad farmed and how my brothers and sisters farm. So I can ask questions of people who are 80, 90 years old. And they grew up on the farm and say, did you have this? Or did you do that? Or what kind of cows did you have? Or those kinds of things. And these all, all bring back memories. These are memories of, and with someone they can share. Now, sometimes sons or daughters who are caring for them say, did, you, did, did they tell you the story about this cow? Or, <laughs> they, yeah, of course, I thought it was great. She said, I've heard it a thousand <laughs> times. That's the connectedness. That's the telling of stories. Mm -hmm. And then, so, so you need to be able to have a little time. There needs to be some prayer. Also then, during that prayer, you know, you kind of calm oneself. Sometimes they'll want to celebrate reconciliation, other times not. I don't force that on anybody. You know, some people say, well, they can't unless they... First of all, they're 99 years old. What do you think they're doing? <laughs> One thing. And, you know, to me, if a person wants to celebrate reconciliation, they'll let me know. And, and inevitably, they do. They do. Um, so it's, it's, it's recognizing that, that this is an in, one should be engaging. And even if it's someone other than myself, if you were to take Eucharist to someone, I encourage people, one, there are prayer cards that people mm -hmm. can follow because they may not be, you know, comfortable with spontaneity or whatever. Obviously, I've been doing this a long time. I don't have a problem with spontaneity. I can weave things together, but that's because that's what I do. Other folks aren't quite as comfortable, and so they might take a card. But I always encourage them, let it take a little time. This is not magic. 
and and it should be some it should be a sacred time and recognizing that you know the Lord is here and we ask God's blessings upon you and that this can nourish you in lots of different ways and and we hope that you feel that sense of being nourished as a lay person, though, don't try it and do reconciliation. That would uh, no, not, not be no, good. No, that would not be good. Although I am sure that has happened because sometimes people just need to tell and you listen and you reassure somebody that God will forgive and you keep it to yourself never ever to repeat it again. You know, as funny as that sounds is that I have been in circumstances where someone who has taken communion it might be a deacon. It might be a man or a woman who who is a, a, a you know a, a person who has done this and does it very very well. Um, there are there are some priests that just hate this part. Again, it's part of personalities. I don't have a problem with it, and and I others just have a very. But then again, that's like all of us. We all have the gifts. It, but there are uh, men and women who take communion. And inevitably, someone may say something like, you know, I don't know if I should do this. Uh, gosh, I did this, 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 this. And before, you know, they can stop them, whether they should or not is questionable. But before they can stop them, is that they blurted it out. And, and if a person, you know, in that circumstance said, you know, you reassure that God forgives. You reassure that God forgives and you leave it in God's hands. Um, and you never ever talk about it again. And the people who have an appreciation for that understand you never ever talk about it again. It is some, again, these are sacred moments. This is something that was, it would never be shared with anybody. You wouldn't like go tell the priest, maybe you should go visit this person? I, yes, I would. I wouldn't necessarily say about what. Again, uh, that's ultimately between them and God. Uh, now I know some Priests might disagree with me on this, but I, yes, it would be great to be able to say, you know what, Ethel or Fred, I think they could, they might really want to celebrate reconciliation. And, and sometimes, you know, you have the folks say, oh no, I'm good. I already <laughs> did that with so-and-so. Okay, you know, now's not the time to have a theological discussion about what is or what isn't sacramental. That's where, you know, God is much bigger than, than, than we are. Or they might say, yeah, I would really like to do that. And uh, so when, when people who, again, who have a sense of it, you know, say, boy, mom, I think mom or dad would like to talk to a priest. Great. I'm right there. And uh, otherwise, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. A little story. I just, because of, uh, you know, this can be a, an incredibly sacred moment. And it can be sometimes you wonder, what were you thinking? A lady shared this story with me. This goes back, would have gone back in the uh, 50s. Uh, she had given birth, and that's when you stayed in the hospital for weeks after giving birth. <laughs> they didn't just shove you out the door. Oh, no, they didn't shove you out the door. Is that she was literally in the bathroom and... All of a sudden, there's a knock on the bathroom, and her comment to the person was, just a moment. Well, the door opens, and you see this arm come in 
the bathroom in the crack in the door. Oh my gosh. Reaching, because they obviously knew the, where the toilet was, reaching saying, body of Christ. Oh my gosh. Now, it was a day in an age one, you would have never, never touched the Eucharist. Only a priest could do that. And so she has to say to the priest, a little further to your right, so that she could take it with her lips oh, no. and receive communion. Not the way to do it. <laughs> take notes, not, not what you should do. Exactly. Not the way to do it. Do I understand it? To a point. To a point. Not the way to do it. No. And again, part of this becomes so mechanical. It's like I've got my rounds to make and I can't afford to come back because so-and-so was in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So my only thought is, is I'm going to reach Jesus in there so that she can take Jesus with her lips. <laughs> and in my mind, you know, never forgot that. Never, never forgot that experience. And, you know, you look at that and says, we can do better. <laughs> we can do better. So there is so much good that can come of it. Opportunities for people to pray, to be connected, to experience the presence of God for the person receiving, and I would say when the person is genuine who takes communion, for the person who brings the Eucharist. It is a sacred and, and powerful moment, or can be for both. So I hope that it continues for many, 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 many decades to come. I hope it continues to be a ministry that people are able to participate in, whether ordained or not. Because there's a lot of folks out there that, that need to be nourished both spiritually and physically. Yeah. Do you want to touch on how you should get a pix for Jesus and not a you know, plastic container? That, you make a very good point. You make a very good point. Um, whatever we do, we must always do, I would say, with great respect, and appreciation for what we have. And so when it comes to the Eucharist and handling the Eucharist, for example, at Holy Angels here, we have a large, uh, a good number, large, good number of picks. A picks is like a, a mini, uh, a mini saboria that, that for the Eucharist. It might be the size, a little bit larger than a quarter, a larger about the size, a little larger than a host because yeah. what you want is to have it in a host. It's usually might be gold or silver in color. Uh, some sort of design or whatever, is that these are th these are items that are blessed and to be used for uh, the Eucharist. And so one should not, because there were some practices, um, one should not take a handkerchief, uh, a tissue, uh, an old pill box, an old uh, compact cosmetic box, uh, and it's amazing sometimes what people want to put hosts in. One is that you do not want the Eucharist contaminated. And Lord knows you put it in a handkerchief. Lord knows. Stick it in your pocket. Yeah. 
is that because even the picks, and I always encourage people, if you keep this for a while, make sure that you clean it on a regular basis. You know, wipe it out. Um, if you wish to, you know, put a little water in it, drink the water. It's not like it's poison. Drink the water and then wipe it out so to sanitize it. Um, if, if there are particles, the way to deal with that is, again, put a little water in it and take the particles and dump them in a flower bed someplace if you can't drink it. Dump it in a flower bed someplace where it's not going to go in the sewer and someplace where it's not going to be walked all over. Flower bed is a nice area because what to do, the particles then go back to their natural state mm -hmm. in the earth. It is the way to dispose if somebody had to. Um, so keep it clean. Um, but you want to respect, and so it, it shouldn't just be shoved in a pocket or a purse someplace where it gets forgotten. I've had people who said, you know what, this probably has been in my purse for 10 or 15 years because that's how long mom has been dead. And An empty pigs or something with, with in it? Eucharist in it. Wow. So it just never cleaned up my purse. And it got caught in a nook or a cranny, forgot about it. You know, it should be someplace where people don't forget about it. If a Eucharist can't be used by the person, consume it yourself. But I already went to communion. Rules don't apply. If you cannot use it because the person is not able to or whatever, is that consume it yourself. Do not store it someplace in case you might use it someday. It always should be connected. And so it's it's to you know to use things with respect and not to use again old pill boxes compact boxes med medication boxes uh those kinds of things not appropriate does not speak of the dignity of, of what we are about here and you can get those from either uh deacon mark myself deacon dave uh or there are other like marie other ministers that can easily provide you with one and use it until you don't need it anymore Maybe it's one time, bring it back to us. What we'll do is we'll clean it, mm -hmm. purify it. If not, then keep it for a while until you no longer need it, and then bring it back so that we can purify it and then recycle. And if you're getting taking communion to the homebound, you shouldn't get communion, then wait like five days, and then go to the homebound. You should do it It should be immediately. done immediately. Yeah. Um, sometimes that might not be possible, Okay, maybe if you need to wait a day, hmm, I would say to do it as immediately as possible, but you shouldn't wait for three, four, five days. Then what you do is you give us a call or, or we make arrangements to have you come to church. We will provide you with the Blessed Sacrament so that you can go. And again, because the more you wait in such, the more the possibilities of contamination, mm -hmm. destruction, stuff like that. It's disrespectful. Um, Generally, if people are receiving uh, at church on Sunday or Saturday night, they're going to go immediately to a person's home and then um, take it, you know, take it to the one. If a person has, a, you know, uh, normally we would uh, we would wait an hour for, you know, before, after eating. When you're dealing with the sick, all of those rules don't apply. None of those rules apply whether it's medication or food. Oh my goodness, I just had jello. You need those things because of whatever you're dealing with. None of those rules apply. 
Caveat, wouldn't that be the same for someone coming to church if they had medication to take? and Absolutely, food? yes. Okay. If they had to take medication and it was around that time, medication does not count for the rules at all. Cool. Or let's say the medication they had to take, you have to put in pudding or something like mm-hmm. that. Sometimes they do that. Doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with medications, it does not apply. Um, it's just, you know, do the best you can. Mm-hmm. Do the best you can. Nice. So, well, that's a lot of good information about taking communion to the homebound. Of what to do and not to do. And not to do, yes. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add? No, for us? I think that no. kind of covers it right now. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of good stuff. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to leave it there uh, for today. We hope you enjoyed that, and we will see you next time.